Right, guys, let's uh, jump into the Word this morning together. Start with the Word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you again for your love and goodness, faithfulness to us, constant provision of our needs for uh, strengthening our church, for uh, giving us a godly affection toward one another. And I pray that as your Spirit empowers us and gives us knowledge of, of one another, that we would walk together in mutual service and humility toward each other, that we may edify and build one another up. It's impossible to do that without your word speaking into our hearts, without it being a central place in our lives, not only individually, but especially uh, as we live in community together. So give us wisdom, give us humble hearts this morning as we talk about something that is uh, so precious, a gift from you, that is marriage that we would uh, take these things seriously and grow by them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, guys, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Let's, let's get started doing the second part of this passage. And I had originally planned to uh, just speak on one thing today, and that would have been verses 5 through 6. But I think, I think we have time to get through 7 today. So... I like it better this way because then I can talk at all, y'all. I don't just have to address the wives. I can talk about the husbands, too, talk to you directly. You guys can go home, get in your car, compare notes, and uh, as the Lord wills, you will apply His Word together. So I think this might be our most beneficial course of action. First Peter 3, verses 1 through 7, please follow along as I read. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God." For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So our primary text this morning will be verses 5 through 7. And as I'm sure you've picked up on, we are in a passage, a very important passage, especially in light of uh, all that Peter has to say before this. We're talking about marriage. Marriage being a precious gift from God. Marriage being established at creation for man to enjoy companionship, to exercise dominion over the world. And I would say that under the provisions of the new covenant, I would say even marriage is that much more exalted because it is through marriage that we are able to proclaim the gospel and actually see the dominion of Christ expand over the face of the earth. Marriage is a key tool for that, for it is marriage, I will remind you, that expresses most intimately the love that Christ has for his church. And if that is the case, we must also be able to just as quickly acknowledge 
that marriage will be one of those things that the world despises. Marriage has been for quite some time, continues to be, and will no doubt continue to be under attack. Remember, the more, the more precious that something is, the more that unbelievers, as long as they remain in darkness, will try to malign and pervert. And that's typically a tactic. They don't try to deny something good as much as they try to reconfigure it or redefine it. And I don't have to uh, quote all the newspapers and liberal pundits to prove that. We know it's out there. Marriage is precious, and it prevails upon the church, and it has always prevailed upon the people of God to defend marriage, to uphold it, to sanctify it, to proclaim it and acknowledge it as something that is precious, worth preserving, and worth fighting for. And unfortunately, so much of the prevailing philosophy today has succeeded in setting man against woman and woman against man. In each of their respective cases, men and women seek a kind of autonomy that we were not created to experience or seek out. Men and women were created for one another. It is not good for man to be alone, and so God made woman as a helpmeet for man. We are meant to have companionship. It's in the very fabric of creation. And so it follows that unbelief will seek to deny or twist that. And so that's why we go to Scripture. Prevails upon the church friends to preserve our marriages, to fight for them, to see them as precious things, to love one another. We see that as a great opportunity, a front line really for gospel ministry, to be a, again, a vessel of grace toward one another and to do that which is pleasing to one another and that which builds one another up in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As husbands and wives, we have that responsibility, and I would even say privilege and pleasure toward one another. That should be a delight to our hearts to be able to be a minister of grace to each other. So in this passage, Peter spends seven verses addressing husbands and wives. And what's interesting, and I'm not, surely, I'm not sure why he does this, but verses one through six, he is addressing the wives and he saves one verse for the men, but I think there's plenty packed in here for us and we will hopefully get through it uh, today. But uh, I really want to impress upon you to hear what the word of God has to say it's countercultural and may and may strike you as being against common sense or even a pipe dream but it's what God's word says and as his grace works in our hearts we would see these things as desirable and even achievable this is grace working itself out in marriage this is the way that God himself designed marriage to function never forget that so here we will go down to review uh, last week's outline, moving through this passage. First, he's addressing wives, and he's talking about the issue of submission, that is voluntarily bringing yourself under the authority and headship and oversight of your husband, understanding that that is your position, your role in the marriage. But once again, I want to impress upon you that it is more than merely fulfilling a role. It is functioning in a God-honoring sort of fashion that brings glory to Jesus Christ and honor and joy to your husband, and that is a good thing. So here's the first one. We can break Peter's instruction to wives down to three initial, three initial parts. Okay, here's the first one. The first, of course, 
is the exhortation. The exhortation. He says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So there's the initial, the initial instruction. Be submissive, even if he is an unbeliever, that you have an opportunity to speak into his life. Here's the next one, is the expression, and that's verses 2 through 4. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, either your husbands are watching you. Your adornment, he says, must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. So right there, he's not saying these things are a bad thing, but he is saying those things when it concerns your relationship and your witness to your husband who, is not, who may not be a believer, there are more important things than outward appearances. There are more important things than all of the external decor, all of the cosmetics, all of the things that you may do to look pretty or to look beautiful, even if for your husband. Peter is saying that there are things that are deeper than this that are much more important, things that are timeless, things that do not fade with the passage of time. And he says that in verse 4, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So we have that exhortation. We have the, sorry, I skipped the second one. You have the explanation where Peter explains it. And then you have the expression, how the believing wife carries herself and what her character is like. She's pure. She's respectful. She's beautiful, adorning herself with all the inner graces of godly gentleness that is far treasured above physical beauty. We mentioned this verse last time from Proverbs 31 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting or vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And surely this is the case for the woman with these qualities, because at the end of verse 4, Peter says very clearly, this is precious in the sight of God. So reiterate, reiterating from last Lord's Day, things which may not be precious in the sight of men or especially not in the sight of women. Women today, much of, much of unbelieving women do not value these things. But it's precious in the sight of God, and that matters more than anything. So those are the first three parts of what Peter has to say regarding marriage. A unique opportunity to put the gospel on display, to exemplify the beauty of God's love toward his people. It would really like to say, I think if, if these, we ignore these commands at our peril, don't forget about that. These are not merely suggestions. These are commands. This is divinely inspired instruction for our good. So if we do not give marriage proper care, attention, and honor, our marriage can be a vehicle that brings untold reproach to the name and to the gospel of Christ. That is something that should make the Christian shudder. That is not something that we desire to be true of us. So here's the fourth thing. We come to the example of submission. So we have exhortation, explanation, expression, what it looks like, and then we have an example. Peter reaches back into the Old Testament, mostly into Genesis, and draws the example of godly women, of godly wives who were submissive and respectful to their husbands, who, who observed chaste and respectful behavior, whose beauty was more than simply external. 
So let's go to verse 5. Let's see what this example tells us. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So we have all these examples. Peter goes back hundreds of years, talks about these, these holy women that provide godly examples. So what he is saying, in effect, is that this is nothing new. He's addressing these wives. This is nothing new. This is not, this is not new revelation. We have several examples of what it was to be a, a godly wife who respected her husband. Consider these women. Now, what is interesting about the women that come to mind, we think of the matriarchs primarily. We think of uh, women like Sarah, who's, who's uh, mentioned specifically here. But we also may think of Rebecca and even Rachel. And Sarah, on a number of occasions, is described as a beautiful woman. Rebecca is described as lovely in form and appearance. Rachel is described as being a beautiful woman. We think, okay, Peter, what gives? I go back in the New Testament, Old Testament scriptures and I see that. But he's saying, no, there was much more to them than simply beauty. Beautiful though they were, he was saying that they used to adorn themselves because they hoped in God. So they adorned themselves with these particular character qualities, the hidden person of the heart, a gentle and quiet spirit. That was, that was their character that deserves to be acknowledged and exemplified. Peter's calling mind the, to mind the beauty of their character, but the vanity of the beauty that they had did not prevail against the hope they had in God. That's what Peter says about them, and they would adorn themselves with that inner beauty of godly character. One writer says this, the deepest root of Christian womanhood mentioned in this text is hope in God. Holy women hoped in in God. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband or in getting a husband. You could add to that, or even children. Her hope is on eternal things. Her hope is on God himself. You could say that the reason that they were even able to be submissive to their own husbands, mark this, ladies, to be able to be submissive to your own husband and to show him respect means that you do not put your hope in him. This submissive, quiet spirit that shows respect to your husband is, is drawn from a hope, a living hope, as Peter describes, that you have in God. And this was true of these godly women that we read about in the Old Testament, that they had such a character quality. That, is what, that was the common denominator of women like Sarah. They hoped in God rather than things in this world, even their husbands. So I, I, I bring that up because I think we, we don't often associate submissiveness to hope. Sometimes we think of submissive, submission purely in respect to your husband. But think of submission in respect to God, that you are able to exercise that humbly before your husband because you have a greater master. God himself is your hope. Remember what hope is. The eager anticipation of God fulfilling all of his promises in Christ. A trust toward God to do what is right. That even though your husband may act wrongly, that even he may disobey the Lord, 
You can trust the Lord to meet your needs. You can trust God to be faithful, even though ideal, we, we don't know what your relationship, all, I don't know all your relationships with your husbands in here, but whether it is ideal right now and it's in a good place or whether it's not in a good place, your hope is in God and that is where your hope remains. You can trust in Him to be faithful. And, and in that, you have the strength and are supplied with everything you need to respect your husband. Think of this verse, and we'll come back to this later, but Proverbs 31.25, once again, talking about the Proverbs 31 woman, describes her as thus, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. If you look at the scripture, looking ahead a little bit, verse 6, it says, you have become Sarah's children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. See, that's the other side of having hope in God. You're not, to, be, to have hope in God means that you are not frightened by any fear because you know that God is faithful and that he will provide your needs. This laughing at the time to come, what does that tell us? Well, it means that this Proverbs 31 woman looks at the future and she does not fear though she does not know what it may bring, but she laughs. And I would say this is a, a laugh of joy. It's a laugh that has no worry, that has no fear. She is not worried about tomorrow, for tomorrow worries about itself. But she anticipates the good things that God brings with the future. And this is the way we understand these holy women, holy women who trusted God. Remember, holy Holy, that is to be women who devoted themselves to God and whose hope was in God. That was their decor. That was the adornment of the inner woman. And out of that hope, and out of that quality of being holiness, they were able to humbly submit to their own husbands. Think of that, taking that ownership. That your husband is yours and you are his. So then he turns into the text. So let's, let's go on again to verse 6 says this, just as, Abraham, or just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. So he is uh, drawing now a very specific example. And we talked about earlier in this text how there would be some cases where a believing woman would be married to an unbelieving man. But now we have the example of Sarah who is married to Abraham, father of the faithful. A, I would say a, a very solid example of what it is to be a man of faith, warts and all. He's an example to us men. So he says this, Sarah, what did, what did Sarah do? What was her priority? She respected her husband. She obeyed Abraham. And I think obedience, we, oh, the word obeyed, we can take the same thing. She followed his lead. He, get, he, he issued her instruction and she followed it. And I know sometimes we, <laughs> we may struggle with that in being submissive, but in trusting the Lord as your husband instructs you as you come over as you come under his headship, be willing to follow that and follow it hoping in God. And that's the example that Sarah sets for us. Calling him Lord. This word for Lord, you look it up in the, uh, the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew Adonai, which is actually one of the names for God. It typically means uh, master. So it is a pretty high and lofty title. And I think it demonstrates from Sarah just the depth of respect that she had for her husband. Now, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Genesis, get a little more insight here, because this is going to help us break down the text in 1 Peter a little more. Turn to Genesis, Genesis chapter 18. 
And this is the chapter where the birth of Isaac is promised. Now listen to this. Uh, verse 9. So Abraham is talking to the Lord outside. And in verse 9, we catch a glimpse of Sarah. And she says, and in verse 9, is, is, this is said, They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. She was eavesdropping. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. That is, they could not have kids. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And I don't think Sarah, I don't think this was a laugh of unbelief by Sarah. I think more of a laugh of wonder, a laugh of intrigue, like, wow, this is actually going to happen. You got to remember, Sarah has been sojourning with Abraham, her husband, this entire time. It is not out of the realm of possibility, I think we can assume it so, that she is now well aware of these articulated promises to Abraham. She is aware of the promise. How do we know that? Well, we look at the text we're in now. She's a holy woman who put her hope in God. What is to hope in if the promise has not been revealed? That's what she's hoping in. So I think she is well acquainted with what the Lord has promised Abraham. And here she is listening in. And she says, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. That's where, that's where we get that from. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? And then verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Pretty neat interaction there. Um, but I think, I think we, we have to call to mind some things about Sarah regarding her submission, regarding her respect for her husband that I think is a great example for, for wives, really of all ages, but especially in the church. These are things that uh, again, as, 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 as born-again women, you are able to receive and apply. Okay, so just three things. The first is this, the heart of Sarah's submission. And here's what I mean by that. We see, we see what's really going on in her heart because, as we know, character often is what you are when you're by, when you're by yourself. What do you think? What do you say? How do you reason? What do you desire when no one else is around, when no one else is watching or listening to, listening to you? And here's what I mean by that. In Genesis 18, Sarah was alone in her tent. No one could hear what she was saying to herself. And yet her respect for Abraham was obvious. She didn't say, I mean, look at this verse in verse 12, Genesis, uh, Genesis 18. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I've become old, shall I have pleasure? This knucklehead Abraham of mine being old also? No, my Lord, my Lord being old also. Saying that to herself when no one else was around. How We see how she thought of her husband. We see a godly reverence. We see a respect for him. That is the heart by referring to him as, as Lord. Now, it's not that you have to, husbands, it's not that you have to go home now demanding that your, that your wife calls you Lord when you walk through the door. Like I said, Katie does that to me, but maybe it's not the same for you. The point is, is that that quality of respect is there, is that you understand that 
It is a sacred, it is a sacred responsibility for your husband to exercise headship over you. It is a godly calling that you should delight in, that you should be supportive of. Thank you. So there's the heart of Sarah's submission. Number two, the patience of her submission. Now, even though she didn't call Abraham a knucklehead, we can look through Genesis and we can find quite authoritatively that at times Abraham was just that. He was a knucklehead. He was, he was, he had his own faults. Sometimes he acted in fear. Sometimes he acted in unbelief. But the patience of her submission, if you're, if you got your thumb still in Genesis 18, go back to Genesis 12. I think we just see a, a wonderful illustration of patience. You know, Abraham is just living a great life, man, living a great life in Ur of the Chaldees. And the Lord goes to him, go forth from your country, leave, leave all that is familiar, go somewhere else. And what did Abraham do in verse four? He went, he obeyed the Lord. Again, great example of of being a godly man, not even really knowing where he was going, not, not knowing all the details, but the Lord says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great. I will do all these things for you. And Abraham did just that. Now we come to verse 11 in chapter 12. And what do we read? It came about when he, Abraham, came near Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Are you kidding me, Smalls? You just got promised by God to be a blessing to the nations. And now you're acting as if that blessing depends upon your safety, right? He acts in fear when he should be acting in faith. We see Abraham called, obeyed, and then he messes up going to Egypt. And you think, oh, that's, yeah, that's all good and well. But he does it twice. He does it two times if you go to Genesis chapter 20. Abraham journeyed from there toward, this is verse 1, Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. See, he didn't, even, he didn't even have the decency to ask her for permission this time. He didn't even consult with her. He's like, she's my sister. I think Sarah's like, what, what? Say again? Like, didn't Abraham, we've, my Lord, we have been through this before. Why are you doing this again? One would think. We also see a similar thing with Hagar in, Gen- in, in Genesis 16, verse 3. Says, she says, hey, I'm past childbearing. She, 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 she second-guessed the promises of God as well. Why don't, maybe the promised seed is through my servant, my maidservant Hagar. And it says, and Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. So sometimes we really, you know, maybe husbands and wives shouldn't listen to each other when they give that kind of counsel. Then you see Ishmael is born, and yet the promise is not derailed. But I think in all of this, the fact that Sarah remained a holy woman, her hope was in God, and she submitted to her husband in spite of all of his imperfections while still recognizing he is chosen by God for a very special purpose and ultimately was a man of faith. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. She respected him and she stuck by him and was faithful. And so again, the, the, the exhortation to you wives this morning is have this patience of Sarah you may look at your husband, but you should look at your husband and ask, just, just as the Lord said, is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
I mean, that's the question you should be asking regarding your husband. He may seem like this guy is a hopeless case, man. He keeps making the same mistakes again and again. But, is, but if he truly belongs to Christ, that is the question. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? The question, of course, no. Nothing is too difficult for him. And so Sarah remains a, a, a pristine example of a, of a woman who hoped in God and who was patient even in her submission. Here's, here's the other thing. I'd say the fruit, the fruit of her submission. What do we see later on in Sarah's life as she was faithful to her husband and as a holy woman, her hope was in God? We see that in Genesis chapter 21, verse 5. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she, and she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? What a beautiful scene to see the promises of God begin to take form and materialize. I would say in Sarah's own experience in her life, that is the fruit of being a faithful woman, to see the promises of God in her own life, that hope against hope. What was, ex- was, what was absolutely impossible from man's point of view to bear children in such an old age, and there Isaac is born. This laugh of wonder is now a laugh of praise and faith. I mean, we've been through that. Ever been so joyful over something? You just laugh. You're like, I can't believe it. And yet, yeah, I do. That's the fruit of submission. And it says this. Let's read on. Well, let me turn back to First Peter first. In verse 6. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by fear. Another another great example here. You follow in Sarah's example. I think also in here implicit in the text is a proof that you are truly born again. We see this, remember, in the allegory of Galatians chapter 4, that basically we are children of the free woman. We're not children of the slave woman that we are God's holy people, we belong to Him. Just as in that same way, the word to wives is clear. You follow the example of Sarah. You are her children. You are like her if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And I think even in Sarah's situation, being pulled away from your home, going out with, your hu- with her husband, not knowing where he was going, but going out on the wing of a promise, the, on the word of God, trusting in that. If you're able to do what is right, not frightened by any fear. Why? Because trusting the Lord overcomes fear. And that is, what we, that is why we can trust that example. That even if your husband does not act right. You can trust God to do what is good. And in that sense, there is no way, there is no reason to be afraid. All right. So let's switch gears here. Looks like we got plenty of time. So that is the word, that is the, that is the word to wives this morning. And now we're going to talk to, time to talk to the dudes, time to talk to the men this morning so guys, I hope you, are, hope you are paying attention. Go to verse 7. Again, one verse here. You husbands in the same 
way. So again, what's, what's that same way? Because we read that in verse one, I would say the same way. In reference to Christ as our example, in reference to what we know about godly, Christ-like submission, act in this manner. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So there you go. In the same way. So look, we want to acknowledge very clearly the the various struggles that that men have today. And we've already talked about this morning about unbelieving society's view and really perversion of marriage. And, I, and, I, and, and really, men, I want to call you to account this morning. Because if we're honest with ourselves, if we have any humility, we got to acknowledge on some level our marriage game is weak. You know, the fact that we are called to love our wives, the fact that we are called to, to lead them, and all of the responsibilities that come with that, sometimes we are woefully self-sufficient. We tragically do not trust in God. Sometimes we take on this very strange, unbiblical movement today called, it's known as MGTOW. Leave it up to a man to come up with an acronym like that, MGTOW. It's called Men Going Their Own Way. There is a movement among men today, young and old, that rejects marriage. They reject that provision of companionship. They, men live in fear of marriage today. They live in fear of losing all, what, all that they have worked for. They live in fear of being left and plundered. They live in fear of women. That's what I'm saying. We have been taught, basically, to fear women. Women whom God has made for, to be a companion, to be a life partner, to enjoy a faithful and loving relationship that points to the beauty of the gospel. So we too are often guilty of that. We struggle also with even what manliness means anymore because we're taught as well constantly that somehow masculinity at its core is is oppressive. It's patriarchal. It needs to be rejected. We struggle with this supposed spectrum of manliness on one hand, we're told, okay, we need to be, I need to be softer. That means I need to be, you know, again, not manly. I need to be soft, effeminate. I have to spend my days sipping soy lattes and wearing skinny jeans, right? And doing whatever it takes not to be offensive, not to come across as oppressive, not to, as we say, mansplain, because we really don't know what we're talking about. All this stuff is real. Isn't that weird? I can't believe I'm saying this stuff. This is real stuff. But then we've reacted too. This is the problem. Even within the church, we have this reactionary theology. You know, although we, we want to be softer, we don't want to be too rough and oppressive. Sometimes we think, well, that's not how men act. Then we go to the opposite end of the extreme. We got to be macho, right? We got to be Mr. Tough Guy. We've got to put our woman in her place, right? Look, here's the deal, guys. If you have to tell your wife to submit, if you have to order her, hey, submit woman, you're doing something wrong. You are failing in your leadership. You are failing in being a humble example of Christ's likeness to her. But back to macho-ness, that's the other side. That's the other error we make. Think we have to be like William Wallace or 
Maximus from Gladiator. I mean, part of that is pretty cool, to be honest with you. Or, or John Wayne or, or Clint Eastwood. Okay. How about being like Jesus? Let's, let's start there. And the, and the point of saying this is that we, we should just reject that spectrum because what we are striving for as men of God is not even on that spectrum. It's not striking a balance between a femininity and our softer side and being a macho dude. No, forget that. We are called to be men of grace, men who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, men who love him and men who love their wives. And he says this, so back to the text. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. So again, this is more than cohabitating or living under the same roof. So this goes beyond Peter telling you, hey, remember that woman you live with? She's your roomie. You got to be a good roommate to her. No, this is to live within the intimacy of marriage, that you are doing life together. But this isn't this come and go, hey, we happen to live under the same roof where you're not, you're not experiencing the joys of companionship together, together. And this is, this remains a very tough challenge for men often because men typically, I don't want to stereotype, but if it's true 99% of the time, give me a break. Men love their, auto- their, their autonomy. We like to do what we want to do. When, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, and we don't like being questioned about it. Typically, we just like to do our thing. You know, when we, 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 we see something, we, wanna, we, wanna, we want it, and we, we, go, we go buy it, right? That's kind of how things work, especially during those cursed days of singleness, right? We kind of do what we want to do, without, and, and, there, and there's not really a lot of ca- accountability either. Oh, and then we get married. Oh, autonomy goes right out the door, because then we have this, this lovely person that sleeps in our bed, and takes all the covers and asks us and has the gall to ask, what are you doing? Where are you going? <laughs> what you thinking about? <laughs> Gosh, I love that actually. It's great. Good stuff. You know, we would, and now we're thinking twice about the things we do and the way we do them, even why we do them. Say that that is a great blessing, but now we're, we are no longer our own man. We're no longer the captain of our own ship. We have a partner, we have a companion, a blessing that God has given us, great favor, great favor that is only second to our salvation in Christ. But it's hard for men to loosen that grip on their own independence and to do things without consideration toward our wives. And this is what this passage is striking at. Live in consideration. Live with your wives like you have a wife. And it says this, Live with her in an understanding way. Live with her in an understanding way. What this means, of course, is live, live with your wife with knowledge. Okay, Know her. Get, know, know who she is. Know, and especially in terms of your Christian walk as you are spiritual head of your household. Know what your wife struggles with. Yes, know what her sins are. Know what her weaknesses are. Know where she excels. Know what her spiritual gifts are. Know what she is thinking. Know what she is feeling. Care about her her sorrows and her joys. Again, do life with her. And men, if this is a problem, put your stinking phone down and pay attention to your woman. Right? Pay attention to her. Know who she is. Live. Don't be clueless toward 
your wife. Don't, don't speak to her. And then her response is, you know nothing. What do you know? See, that's to live with her without knowledge. Know who your wife is. Got a quick breakdown of this. This is not, this is not my own. But three L's. This is kind of, guys, this is, help you, this is to help you sort of grease, grease the tracks here because you're going to go home and you're going to go to work on your marriage and you're going to delight in your wife and you're going to know who she is. So here's the first thing. It's called lead, love, learn, right? You are the leader, you are the lover, and you are the learner. So lead her, love her, learn her. So lead her, of course. I think we, we, th- we think of, of, of spiritually, lead her spiritually, make sure that you are, you are instructing her heart from the scriptures, that you know what the word of God says in regards to life in Christ. Be able to disciple your wife. Be able to answer her questions. And if you don't know, tell her, I don't know, but I will find out. Said so this to many men. You need to be the Bible stud in your own household. Okay? If you claim Christ, then be able to teach about him to your wife. Lead her and lead your family. Here's the other thing. Love her. That's a no-brainer. Love your wife. And this operates on many fronts. You love your wife in terms of providing for her. So as men have a solid work ethic, you know, get up, rise and grind, do your thing, put the pedal to the metal, the hand of the plow, work hard. Be an example of what it means to diligently work with excellence. Love her in that regard. Love her also in the sense, and this goes back to leadership, you're not only the provider, but you are the pastor. This past summer, we read this awesome book by Sam Waldron called A Man is Priest in His Home. A book all about learning how to love your family by exercising spiritual leadership. Here's another way to love your, love your wife. Love your wife by wooing her. Yes, woo your wife. Show her affection. Show her romance. Pursue her in the blessed confines of marriage. Let her know in loving her and that you desire her in, and no one else. Love her in that regard by being faithful to her, by having eyes only for her, by delighting in her. Lead her, love her. Thirdly, Learn her, and this goes back to this instruction of living with her with an, in an understanding way. Living with her with knowledge. What is she like? What does she enjoy? What do you do that makes her cringe? Right. Very. Some some of these questions are gonna. Some of these things of learning your wife is 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 going is going to range from some surface things to some really deep things, matters of the heart. And yet, none of these things are possible. If you don't dwell with her, if you don't do life with her, if you don't look for ways to be a part of her life. So don't be distant and don't be clueless. Learn her and ask her those questions. And, and here's another thing too. Typically people, people uh, evolve, develop over time. You're going to go through some struggles that are going to shape you. I mean, I, I think of just in my own marriage that, that Katie and I have changed quite a bit since when we got, you know, for good or for bad. We've changed quite a bit. We have to constantly learn one another. You know, she learned last year that I don't like potatoes. You know, something as simple as that. 
But people, what I'm saying is people change and develop over time. So what is, what is very practical here from the scriptures is to show constant attention to your wife and how she's developing, how she's changing, how you can serve her as you are learning about her as time goes on and as you walk in grace together. Now, look at the text again. You live with your wife in an understanding way as with someone weaker since, since she is a woman, Okay, so this is, this is the text that really gets us, you know, we gotta, we got to tread carefully here because, you know, women, Peter just called you someone weaker, and since you are a woman, so let's, let's, walk, through, let's walk through this text together. And of course, this does not mean that the woman, that the wife is, is inferior, doesn't mean she's a second-class citizen in this world or especially in marriage. We have to remember, especially men, that the Lord uses often the weak things to shame the strong. Right? He does that. He'll do it in your marriage. So important to remember. Here's another thing that is often thought of is that this refers to uh, women's emotions because sometimes we, we, we typically view women as, as more emotional and that this emotion actually makes them weaker. And one of the reasons I don't agree with this is is sometimes emotion causes people to be a little more transparent and honest, more vulnerable, more available. There could be a quiet strength in an honest and humble expression of biblical emotion, emotion that is driven by truth. But here's what I think the weakness is primarily. I think it's just primarily physical. Women do not have the same physical strength that men do. So I'm going to back this up by science because science is all the rage right now, right? Women are weaker than men. Why? Because science. All right. Listen to this. When fat-free mass is considered, men are 40% heavier and have 60% more total lean muscle mass than women. Men have 80% greater arm muscle mass and 50% more lower body muscle mass than women do. Men have about 90% greater upper body strength and about 65% greater lower body strength. The average man is stronger than 99.9% of women. In terms of anaerobic power, men have over 45% higher vertical leap and over 25% faster sprint times. Sex differences in anaerobic sprint speeds are not narrowing and some data suggests the gap may have widened in the last decade. The last time the world record, I believe, in the 100-meter dash was broken was sometime in the 80s by Florence Griffith Joyner, 10.49 seconds. I mean, since then, the men's 100-meter dash has been broken several times. I think right now it's sitting at about 9.5-something. It's crazy, but I digress. But I think he's primarily talking to the physicality of women versus the physicality of men. And here's how this is going to apply. Given that that is the case... Women, and the fact that women are in a subordinate role to men, they are much more vulnerable in society to exploitation. This is why Peter is drawing attention to this. Knowing that men protect women. Show them respect by being their protector. Because they are more vulnerable to that kind of exploitation. And we, we have always, it's, it's, it's a, I think it's one of those timeless realities that men are always called to use their strength, if men to, to be courageous, to be strong, to be godly and brave, and to protect women. That's a, that's a sacred calling. That's a good thing. And women, I would also say, I would also encourage you, that is nothing to be ashamed about if, 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 if a man's strength is necessary to defend yourself. 
If you need a man to help you carry a couch upstairs, let him. That's a good thing. Shows that men are still useful for something. (laughs) But that is it. We're called to respect them in that regard, that they are more open open and vulnerable as being subordinate, as the weaker vessel. And yet that is not a way to show dishonor or to neglect them, but rather a way to care and protect and to honor them. It says this, as someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Okay, so here's this, here's this, next, this next portion of Scripture. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Okay. So even though women play a subordinate role in marriage, this by no means makes them inferior. That's why Peter goes on to say she is a fellow heir of the grace of life. Think about this. Are we, are we saved by the same Savior? Are we saved by grace? Yes, we're saved by the same faith. We are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We have the same promises. In that sense, we are a fellow heir of the grace of life. The grace of life, of course, being all of the good things that God supplies to us in Christ. That we are co-heirs, fellow heirs. We stand, men and women both, to inherit the kingdom when Christ returns. So none will be left out. None believing will be a second-class citizen. The husband will not have a superiority over his wife. And knowing that, how then could we as husbands, knowing that such honors are given to the wife in Christ as the husband is in Christ, how can we fail then, men, to show our wives due honor, due respect, to treat them with love, to treat them with goodness, kindness, and all that prevails upon us as godly men? We are equal recipients of the grace of life. And so we give them honor. And think about how this partnership works. I love this text from Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Such a great uh, application here of what marriage is like, that as fellow heirs, we direct one another in that grace of life, and we enjoy it with one another. Now, here's, here's a couple things I can, can say. Now, since this is, this is typically this is direct to husbands by the context, but I want to I encourage you both. So husbands and wives today, I want you to listen to just a few, a, a few things, how the grace of life can be manifest in your own life, how, it, how you can cultivate it, how you can grow it together as partners, as a married couple. So here's the first one. In order to enjoy or cultivate the grace of life, stop competing with one another for supremacy. If you're co-heirs, it would follow, hey, you are not in competition with one another. You are not trying to get the better of one another. I see this so much in, well, it's usually, again, mid-marital counseling. 
stuff is going wrong and, and, and people you know, have reached out to me and this is one thing that is, that is almost always there. There is a, you started competing with one another somewhere along the line. At some point, someone did you wrong and you felt the need to get back at them or to show them that you couldn't be pushed around. So you started competing with each other for supremacy instead of allowing grace to prevail. You wanted to get the upper hand. So here's the thing. Stop trying to get the upper hand. Stop treating each other spitefully. Stop returning evil for evil. Just what Paul says in Romans, right? Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. We're never going to do that in the world if we're failing to do that in our own marriage. Overcome evil with good. Here's another one. View one another in light of the gospel. Of course, what does that mean? It's a very fancy saying. It means that you understand that you are both under grace, that you both belong ultimately to God, and so you will do whatever it takes to promote the saving, sanctifying power of God in your respective lives. Here's the thing. This goes back to, is anything difficult for, too difficult for the Lord? You do not, sometimes you, get, you go through so much trouble in your marriage that you start to think of one another as a hopeless case. This question emerges, why even bother? But look, if you both belong to the Lord... Continue to commit yourself to the highest good of each other. If you're still, even if, even if you have grounds, even if one of you has grounds for divorce, that may have happened in your marriage, but if you have resolved to stay with one another, then commit yourself 100% to viewing your significant other in light of the gospel. Love each other redemptively. If God's grace will not fail, nor should you, you should not act like it will. Do not fail to show grace. Do not view one another as a hopeless case. Remember, marriage is lifelong. And if you hope in God as a holy man or a holy woman, then grace will prevail. Here's another one on the heels of that. Acknowledge spiritual progress in each other's lives. Okay? Here's, and here's what, the, here's what this looks like because sometimes we, we stumble in this area. Okay, basically it looks like this. So say, say, say wives, your, your, your husband has a, a huge problem. He's developed a sinful habit and it's come to light. You've rebuked him. Perhaps he's been under church discipline and he repents, right? He, he knows that this is wrong. He doesn't want to do it anymore. He wants to walk in the light by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's got a great track record. You know, it could be months or years long and he, doesn't, he does not sin. He does not stumble in, in, in the same regard for a very, very long time. But then, then he does. Okay, it is, that is not the time to say, see, you've never changed. Well, <laughs> repentance is a lifelong commitment. And we have to acknowledge that repentance does not mean sinless perfection. Remember, sanctification, lifelong commitment. We're in this for the long haul with each other. Okay, so in that sense, yes, people make mistakes and we treat one another with the grace that is commensurate with those mistakes, with that falling back into sin. But when we acknowledge the spiritual progress in each other's lives, we don't just look at the mistakes. We look at the spiritual growth. We look at the growth of godly character. We acknowledge and rejoice even over the spiritual fruit that has grown. I mean, think about it. We tend to see ourselves in the best possible light, right? Do the same for your spouse. Acknowledge their spiritual progress. I'm not saying excuse sin, but what I am saying is that 
Acknowledge that God's power is at work in them and do not deny the gospel's place and power in their life. Here's another one in terms of honoring one another as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Honor each other publicly and privately. Praise one another. Say good things about one another. Do not make it a habit of constantly complaining about someone, about your wife or husband, to someone else. And I would say especially not to the opposite sex. So husbands, do not make it a pattern. In fact, don't even start complaining about your wife to another woman. That is the path to adultery. Do not do that. Instead, in acknowledging one another's spiritual progress and loving each other redemptively, make it a habit to honor each other. That is, say good things about each other. Acknowledge very clearly where the Lord is working in their lives and your marriage. Because you show people that you treasure your marriage, that you treasure your spouse, and that you are committed to working on a marriage that honors the Lord. Here's another one. Make it a habit to enjoy all earthly graces while anticipating the heavenly ones. That's a great one. Enjoy one another. Share life with each other and always look for ways to encourage each other. Last one. Forgive quickly. Do not let a root of bitterness take place in your heart. Pluck it out. Bring it to the Lord. Ask for grace. Ask for mercy to be patient with one another, and to love one another through it. Forgive quickly. Forgive completely. And finally, put down your stinking phone. I know I already said that, but I'm going to say it again. Pay attention to each other. All this, closing, so that your prayers will not be hindered. That's the last thing we want, men, is for our prayers to be hindered. Of all the things we know that are beneficial in the Christian life, and even in your marriage, you are going to see prayer as one of them. Prayer is where you cast all your cares on Him. Prayer is where you go to find grace and help of need, and to help in time of need. Prayer is where you stand guard and pay attention. See, Prayer is where you are equipped, where you ask God for things that you lack. It says that the the Bible says that the prayer of a, of a righteous man availeth much. And I don't care how righteous you are, if you don't pray, it's not going to avail you anything. So don't let anything hinder your prayers. And if you are not a man of prayer, now is the day to start. A prayerless husband. I mean, talk about a pitfall in your marriage. Talk about a threat. Talk about the... It's, it's, it's like the guardians of the, fort, the gates of the fortress have abandoned their posts if you do not pray. You become self-focused, self-sufficient, and worst of all, self-righteous. And trust me, a self-righteous man is absolutely unbearable to a godly wife. It's, un, it's unbearable to anybody for that matter. But be a man of prayer. Do not let anything hinder your prayer. And the key to that is, is how you view your wife. View her as a fellow heir. And that's our text. I mean, I'm sure you, there's probably a lot of questions, but I really want you guys to take this to heart. Internalize it. Search the scriptures. Talk these things out with your wife or with your husband. Okay? Pray over them. I mean, we want, I mean this, is, this is for the sake of the, of the church as well. A strong church has strong marriages. If we claim to love the Lord within our own marriages, there will be a love for each other. That's what I want for us. I want us to have godly marriages where 
women respect their husbands and where husbands love their wives and treasure them. And I think we can pray to that end. So let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you again uh, for your word. And I pray that you would strengthen us that, uh, for, for the wives in here, that, that you would press upon them the, the character of, of, of women like Sarah, that her hope would be their hope. Their hope would be in you and your promises, in all the comfort and grace that, that, that they bring that they would be holy women devoted to you ultimately, knowing that as you strengthen them, they can respect their husbands and come under their leadership and hopefully their wisdom. Lord, help us, these men, these precious men in this church, that, that, that really it's time to up our game. It's time to answer the call to be godly men, but godly men according to your word, not to the latest not according to the latest fashion, the latest cheesy slogan, or even theological fad. We want to be like Christ. We want to be men who are strong, yet men who are humble servants, who love our wives fiercely and are faithful to them. Pray, Lord, that you would grant us repentance from any kind of waywardness, any kind of compromise, anything that we allow to creep in our marriage that prevents us from hoping in you and that prevents us from honoring our wives. Help us to treat them as fellow heirs of the grace of life, that all that you give us, you give them. We should rejoice in that together. We should praise you for that together rather than competing against one another. So help us to be firmly united with them, to be faithful men, and to cherish them, to be exemplary men of God who truly love our wives like you love your church. And what a, what a standard that is, but there it is and that we would desire that for our marriages. In all this, Father, we can commit joyfully to you. In Jesus' name, amen.